Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. I found Boss Grassmeyer from his wonderful weekly newsletter, Music Tech Future, but also he is the director of products for Adagio, a new classical music streaming service. He joined me by Skype from Berlin, and we shared a conversation that covered a wide range of innovation topics, including what may happen from MySpace moments, how songs are changing due to playlist cuts, and how Instagram Stories is a place to watch for new ways that people express themselves to learn more about where music can be going. Once upon a time, I really wanted to uh, live in a particular country because my girlfriend at the time was there, and I had to write a thesis for uh, for my university. It was like a business school, so I had to do it with kind of a client. And the only person I knew in that country with a business, he was doing a small label, uh, and I knew him because I was always into music, so I, I knew like music people. And I said, why do I, why don't I come kind of help you and consult you in um, how do we uh, basically music marketing. So my, my background was like a communications and marketing study and um, I wanted to figure out how can we develop like a better marketing strategy for you. And what, and what country was this in? Uh, that was Bulgaria. Bulgaria? Oh, yeah. A, a, yeah, was, a traditional hotbed of, of music innovation. <laughs> Actually, Eastern European, particularly Romanian, house music is very popular as kind of pop house music in Western Europe, especially at that time. This was 2010 or so. Anyway, so he was doing things like that, and I was starting on the research for the thesis, and I just saw that this music space is changing so much all the time that I realized if I'm going to write something, it's going to be outdated by the time I write it. Basically, you know, I would have said something like, if you make your MySpace red, you'll sell 20% more music. By the time I actually completed my thesis, MySpace was kind of just collapsing and being overtaken by like SoundCloud for the for the music embeds and Facebook for the the social graph. Yeah, so I took a different approach and and I started really studying the space and, and getting into it. And I'd always been passionate about making sure that artists can find a way to do things on their own terms. I was listening to a lot of hip hop growing up. Yeah, pe- a lot of people in hip hop, especially in the eighties, nineties, they got really bad deals. And they were complaining about the music industry a lot. So that's kind of, I think, frames for me that like this, this kind of classic view of like music industry is bad, artists are good, and uh, maybe something should be better. And I learned to kind of nuance that view over time because it's way more complicated and complex than, than I thought. But I really felt very passionate about uh, helping the artists independent of any of the existing structures. And that's how I got into this. So you are moving from Bulgaria to now you're in Berlin now? I, well, I've moved around a bit. I'm from Holland. Uh, at that point, I was living in Bulgaria, but I've also lived in Istanbul. I've spent uh, about three years in a music streaming service in Moscow, and now I'm in Berlin. You, are, you went from Moscow to Berlin, and I ran into you because you had this magnificent writing on music where you were really in 
in the headspace and knowing what was happening with a whole bunch of new ventures. How did you end up getting Music Tech Future launched? And then how did you end up getting with Adagio, your other current really new venture that you're part of? So so I was working on a music streaming service in, in Russia. I just mentioned this. At some point, I quit that. And, and it was a good kind of reality check of how difficult it is to kind of build new services, especially if you try to function like a startup because if you're trying to do music streaming you need to do you need to do like label deals those are really expensive so you need to raise a lot of money as soon as these deals start you're just losing a lot of money from day zero and because of this you cannot really apply the typical startup model where you try something small and then you kind of scale it up uh, you have to start with a product without really being able to try anything I mean, that's, I'm saying this in absolutes, of course, it's more nuanced, but it really impressed me how difficult it is to innovate in music. After that, I, I took like a three-month break because I didn't have much time for holidays then. I was leading like the, the product, like tech team and, and like related like design and things like that. So I took a break for a couple of months and uh, I ended up back in Holland because I didn't really have a plan for what next. But I decided let's go work with startups that have like basically nothing to do with music because I felt probably it's easier to innovate. I just wanted to be working on innovative things and solving innovative problems. And I was a bit disillusioned with music for a bit. What is an innovative problem? Okay, so then first it comes to what, it, what is innovation, I guess. And I think this is just finding a fresh approach, doing something new, basically, in very simple terms. By making use of new technology, solving a problem that's out there. Uh, new technology could be like really cutting edge things or it could be technological reality. What is a technological reality? I know I'm going to push, but that part of what we wrestle with is because for everybody, it's somewhat different. And when we say we say innovation and it comes off our, our lips and tongue very easily, but for everybody, it really seems to be kind of a different term of art. So when I say technological reality, for instance, everyone has a smartphone in their pockets, and this smartphone uh, nowadays has access to like high bandwidth networks. All of our smartphones have at least one camera, usually even two, like selfie cam and, and uh, the front-facing uh, camera. This creates a certain reality or potential like media reality. Yeah, that, that creates a new landscape. I think, I mean, that's, that helps Snapchat do what they do. Of course, Snapchat the real innovation in Snapchat is in the AR filters, like the augmented reality filters, where you can like overlay masks on your face and they, they stay there when you move. This app was enabled by the technological reality that everyone has these smartphones with cameras and uh, that they're able to participate and they're actually able to watch all the videos without burning through their, through, through their bandwidth or without having like significant delays. They have to wait for things loading. Five years ago, that would have been really hard. Ten years ago, especially, because then, like, the first iPhone came out ten years ago. So the technology reality is the fact that I have various pieces of a puzzle that I could put in place in different ways that weren't available before that might be fixing or creating new problems? I, I was working with a bunch of startups, like one which uh, figured out a way to incentivize people to cycle by, by paying them. So they, it would track people cycling and would figure out a way to pay people just for cycling. And then, then I was working with a bunch of other startups, and I just saw so much innovation, and I thought, I need to bring this type of thinking, uh, like startup thinking, back to the music business, because I think one, kind of the, the non-techie music business could 
benefits a lot from this type of thinking. Also, I wanted to. I started seeing like a bunch of interesting music startups. I thought I want to shine a light on them too because, yeah, they need to be seen. They need they need adoption. People need to know what is out there and what they can do. Writing always generates a lot of opportunities for me. So I, I wanted to start writing on a regular basis. Uh, newsletters seemed like something interesting to experiment with. So things kind of just fell together, and I thought, okay, I'm just gonna stop everything. I'm just gonna write my newsletter. Opportunities will emerge. I need to be flexible. Yeah, so I started doing this newsletter to force myself to write every week. Basically, from the first edition, I, over the years I built up a big Twitter following. So from the first edition, there were people following the newsletter that I uh, really didn't want to let down. So I said it's going to be weekly. It's going to go out at that time every week. And I've basically, at least not to any fault of my own, have I missed any of the deadlines. Like one time, the server. One time the mail server was down uh, and it went out like a few hours later. But um, even on Christmas, even when I'm sick, I write this newsletter every week at the same time. And people have a ritual around this. Like people check in for, for their uh, weekly dose and that's nice. I think that's that contributes to kind of having this connection with people because a lot of people do read it like week after week after week. So you've gone from writing about innovation to now being at an innovation company again, you've seen innovation in a, a lot of different company incarnations, both outside and inside the music. We talked about the opportunity is the fact that we have all these new combinations of features, technologies, or some people geekly call them affordances. What drives the innovation, though? What drives the change other than there's new opportunities afoot? I think there's two things, and I think music is really fun to work in because you get people with very um, idealistic uh, goals. I think there's just a lot of people that see things could be better and they want to, to figure out a way to to do that and to sustain themselves. So they, they start like, let's say, an innovative music business. But on, on the other hand, there's a lot of problems in music. There's a lot of complexity. So people see business opportunities and, and they get into that. So I think those are two of the main drivers. And it's also, I think it's just it's not so hard to learn how to program or to learn how to kind of leverage some technology. To name one example, SoundCloud just started as a tool to share music between friends. Like they just built it for themselves. And I think it's easier and easier to just build a tool that solves your particular problem. And then you might find out that this tool also solves other people's problems. And then, you know, maybe you're lucky and you can turn it into a business. I think those things are the most important. I think anything to smoothen out, to make it easier to license music and things like that are, are nice, but I, and, they, and they really help a lot, and I think that's really important, but I don't think that's the reason why people get into this. Why do they get into it? Because they want to be fixing it for themselves? or there's, What makes music different about that? Because that's the same issue in a lot of different areas. They would like to improve life, this is why I innovate. Is, is music more of a heartbeat issue for people or what drives people to be innovators in music? And you've, you've met so many different innovators. I mean, I think there's a lot of, a lot of uh, motivations. Like sometimes you have people, they got lucky and they, they came into some money through like trading or, or, or like a successful startup that they sold and like it was boring, like FinTech startup or whatever. And they thought, now let's do something sexy and they do music. So there's a lot of that. So many people really love music. So they really want to do something with that because they think <laughs> they think it will be really fun to work 
on something that's a passion, that's also hard because I think it's also really easy to forget that you're still working even though it's your passion. So I think you you see a lot of people kind of burning out and stuff, and that's that's beyond music startups, but that's also just in the general business of music or in any business where people are really passionate about the, the topic that they're working on. So you are now with a new opportunity. What is it that you are currently doing? Just to add, the newsletter turned into an agency at some point. So I was uh, kind of freelancing with um, different types of music companies, again, doing the thing that I was trying to do with the newsletter. So I was helping startups get formulate business strategies for getting their products out there, maybe even doing like some of their marketing, uh, helping conferences with their program, uh, helping music companies with solving problems in, let's say, innovative ways. And then I got a cool opportunity. So I spoke to one startup, which which is called Idajo, where I work now. They are music streaming service for classical music. I'm product director there now. I was very skeptical when I heard about it because I thought it's, it's like a limited niche. Why why would this work? Why wouldn't people not just you know listen to Spotify? So they explained uh, the problem with how classical music is consumed. So people search by composer, they search by the writer rather more often than by the performer. That data is not really in Spotify. That might be in, in like album titles or you will find like a Mozart page, but it will be the same as like a Kanye West page. But Mozart is not an album artist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he so would be if he was in this day and age. No, no, no. I realized that there's like a big issue in that space and that seemed really interesting to solve because it's not just about the music it's about the behaviors that people have around the music and i think there's when i was working in russia on a music streaming service there uh, called zvuk we were uh, trying to do multi-app approach uh, i was trying to not build an, another one-size-fits-all type of music streaming service app similar to spotify or deezer uh, like this kind of all-you-can-eat offer at, at like ten dollars a month basically I was trying to split different behaviors into apps that do one thing really, really well and price that much lower so that you would get different types of music consumers into it, but also so that you would have like a case where you do a particular behavior really well, like a behavior around music. I'll explain uh, in a sec what I mean there, that people will pay for that despite already having a Spotify subscription or something else. When I heard this thing with um, about Idajo and I spoke to the founders, I realized, hey, here's actually an opportunity to show that people are willing to pay more than $10 a month for music, that if you build a service that caters really well to specific behaviors around how people explore, navigate, connect to music, how they collect it, how they compare recordings, because uh, in classical music it's really common to have like over a hundred different uh, recordings of one composition performs maybe even just in one decade by all kinds of orchestras around the world. And people like comparing these things. People like comparing play styles over the decades. Sometimes you have like an orchestral piece with vocal soloists. So these add a lot of character. So um, people might have a preference for particular vocal soloists over others and, and things like that. All of that is really hard to compare in existing music services. And I see like so many behaviors around music there that I thought, let's do this and let's show people that people are willing to pay another, uh, let's say, 10 bucks on top of their monthly Spotify subscription. Yeah, so that's, that's the challenge for me. I'm product director there now and we're, we're, we're a young company 
And uh, we haven't really done much marketing. We're just trying to get like the foundations of the product right. The product is live, not in the US though. So I think a lot of listeners will, will not be able to listen. Not yet, though, if they listen to this later. We're recording this in 2017. So it could be later. They yeah. they're going, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, we'll be, I mean, it, it's basically due to, due to music licensing. Uh, the U.S. is a bit different and a bit more difficult and also a bit more expensive than uh, other markets. So we're focusing now on primarily on German-speaking markets because that's where the company is based. And that's uh, by some consider, I guess that's considered like the cradle of classical music. We'll come, obviously we'll come to the U.S. And we might already be there by the time we hear this. You've got a, a complex licensing agreement and arrangements then with classical, so you need to do the direct licensing because you're doing an interactive service, and you're needing to get metadata that's a lot deeper and richer than stereotypical popper rock metadata. Is that data already available and clean, or is that part of your challenges in a new service? When we started, uh, we had like a team of musicologists come up with the right data structure to like be the foundation for such a service. And we found out that just a lot of this data, maybe it doesn't exist, maybe it does, maybe it's somewhere in a, in a library actually, like uh, where you have to go find, dig through papers and archives and stuff to find the relevant information. So from very early on, I guess this is uh, like, I'm gonna say 2015, we've been building up our own metadata around this because we didn't find, there's like metadata providers, uh, but we didn't find anyone that has a structure in a way that we think is good and that has the type of completeness that we expect. Basically, we're, we're building it all ourselves. We know more about the music than some of, than at least than the metadata we get from, from some labels. So we're working hard on building, I think, probably at some point, the most complete data set in classical music. And I'm assuming then you're assuming it's not going to stay in German, so you're setting up whatever you're using for your database system so you'll be able to replace languages? Yeah, so it's already available in English, and since uh, since our, there are performers from all over the world, you already get issues with like naming and transliteration of naming. So for instance, from Russian, you have a lot of Russian composers and performers how do you write their name in English? How do you write their name in German? It might differ. For instance, Tchaikovsky. In English, you would start spelling Tchaikovsky with a T and then CH. In Spanish, you just start with CH. So issues, issues like this uh, arise. But language is an interesting um, element to, to building, uh, building out services and building databases. So one question that's not on our list of questions, we're beginning to more and more in this podcast and otherwise look at, at issues from various countries' points of view on music. So what are the cool things happening in music in Berlin, and who might be a few people that you can talk about? Not realizing, of course, that you have so many friends and contacts that you'll be leaving somebody out. Obviously, there's SoundCloud here. Um, there's Native Instruments, which is a big like uh, music hardware manufacturer, but they also have, uh, they make very popular DJ software called Traxer. Um, there's Ableton. Um, which is also like digital audio workstation software, and they do a bit of hardware too. What are the next new innovations coming up the pike overall and anything that is cool and of interest in Berlin? 
I'm very worried to uh, about freestyling about this topic, but Ethereum, which is uh, a, a blockchain and a popular uh, cryptocurrency, is has an office here, and there's a lot of people from the Ethereum ecosystem here. There is um, a company called Big Chain DB, and they're building kind of um, I have to say it right, but I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to build like a IP, like intellectual property layer for managing rights on the blockchain. So I think that's very innovative. Resonate, which is, uh, okay, a, a music streaming service is trying to build itself up as a cooperative. So the, the listeners and the artists and anyone who has music on there who has a stake, they can own a part of this service. I think that's a really interesting thing. And they're also uh, working on like a <laughs> blockchain foundation for this, uh, for this platform. Aitu Kaiku, uh, A-I-T-O, K-A-I-K-U. And what they do is they make something uh, like reactive music, so music that reacts to your environment. It uses like sensors from your camera or it uses sound in your environment to augment their the music experience. I think that's an important trend in general because uh, music always adjusts to our technological reality. The mediums that are available uh, and the expectations that become, uh, that, that, those mediums create. So I think music as being sounding the same every time you hear it, that's a very, that's a rather new concept that just came about with the recording and basically became popularized through like mass consumption uh, items of, of the recording and CDs after World War II. So the concept of music sounding exactly the same every time you hear it that's very, very new. And I think maybe that's not, it's cool. It's good to be able to have that. Uh, but it's not like a necessary quality of music or not as necessary as people think it is, I think, in my opinion. So I think it's very possible that music will be more interactive, more adaptive and get like new, new shapes and forms in the future. So you've seen a lot of innovations coming up the pike. Are there innovative areas that you see need to come up the pike for a, a healthier ecosystem in music or for new opportunities for artists? Are there kind of missing pieces that it would be great to see innovations in? I mean, I wish I wish it was easier. Uh, and, and this is something I've been saying before, before I was uh, with IDAJO, so it's not about our current state, but I, I wish it was easier for startups to understand if they want to do something, what it costs in terms of licensing, uh, what they can do with the music that they license, what music they can license, and just having that all kind of clear up front rather than to ha go into like not so transparent negotiations because this actually, I think, also deters investors because, you know, there's been a lot of stories where, um, where a startup gets investment and then just the bulk of that money goes straight to labels and, and the startup doesn't get a good chance, maybe also due to their own fault because they're doing dumb deals, but they don't get a good chance to actually get a product ready to go to markets with. I think that's the issue and I would love to see uh, better frameworks or maybe some innovation, you know, maybe their blockchain is a uh, opportunity. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't really want to touch the subject too much, but other than blockchain, and you've mentioned several companies that are fairly interesting, are there is there anybody else that you're really intrigued or excited by that is doing 
other than your own company, of course, that you're really intrigued by right now? What I'm really interested in is I think, and I, I hope not because I think SoundCloud is a really cool company, but we might be witnessing like something of a new like MySpace moment. So when, when MySpace kind of started to collapse or just when people started leaving MySpace, it created like a lot of opportunities for music startups to find like new ways to do things because suddenly there were all these audiences that didn't really have a home. And it was this big music tech kind of boom around, what was it, 2007 to 2010 or so. Like all, music hack days came up, SoundCloud came up, Facebook started coming up as a also a music platform. And, and there were just all these, uh, uh, Spotify came up, the smartphone was there suddenly, that created a new reality. And I think we're there again. Uh, we have this big kind of DIY platform in the form of SoundCloud that's currently at this point in time, which is like August 2017, seems to be struggling. And whether they pull through or not, I don't know if that's important because they're losing the trust of their community and people are worried that they're going to lose all their uploads and their music collections and things like that. So people are going to start looking for new homes. Similarly, Spotify is starting to focus on mainstream audiences. Uh, they, they, they've got the early adopters in. They're now trying to cater to mainstream audiences kind of making it harder to come across user-generated content. So if you're building a lot of playlists in the service, it's a little bit harder for your playlists to be seen. I don't think they're adding an, enough tools for early adopters for the power users. So there's an opportunity there too. Um, and that doesn't have to be about playlisting. I just think maybe it's going to be more about video and uh, interaction around music and, and things that are possible now. Also, we're starting to see like the third device after like laptops and smartphones, which is like voice control interfaces like this Amazon Alexa or uh, like Google Home uh, or smart cars, uh, I mean, or smart uh, speakers in cars. People are going to have this type of interface, conversational interfaces, and that requires a really different way of thinking about what you do with um music, what, how you recommend music to people, how people access it, because they cannot see anything, so they just have to say something, and the thing has to be really, really smart to understand what their intention is. So that's a really good opportunity for artificial intelligence-style uh, startups. And I would suggest also for startups who are attempting to market into that interface decision model, because it's having to make pre-decisions about what, what the bucket is you're considering from, and there's some really interesting conversations from organizations trying to figure out how in the world do I market a song into a statement? So is it the playlist that become the, the, the interaction there? Am I calling out lyrics? Am I calling out an artist and then what do you play first? There's a lot of discussion within a lot of music companies right now about how do you get awareness and recall if the interface is conversation and not a visual prompt? Yeah, um, these are really good questions and uh, really interesting problems to be solving. I think, though, that these interfaces, they're, they're not, they don't stand on their own. Like, you haven't stopped using your laptop because you have a smartphone. You use them in pair, like the one for slightly different things than the other, but there's a lot of kind of interaction between or overlap between them. And I think it will, it's the same with uh, voice-controlled interfaces. One startup that I think is interesting that can fill kind of a gap is the Wave VR. 
I, I've been on the fence a little bit about VR because I think people, particularly people make like music videos in VR, they, they film like balance performances in VR and I think that's just not very interesting given what you can do with the medium. I don't really see that working. Um, but the way VR, they create something like social listening parties inside VR. So social listening, uh, a good example from a few years back would be Turntable FM where people mm-hmm. would enter a room, there would be someone kind of DJing, or everyone could actually DJ. Yeah, and people would you be able to chat. You could tip the DJ. And, um, I don't, could you? In yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you could tip the DJ. That was the only economic model, which is, I think, one of the reasons it kind of struggled for a bit. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, by that time I had burned out because I had spent way too much time <laughs> on, on certain table of them, like others. It was too addictive. I think that was a, a general complaint. So, so they're doing something like this in VR, but it's way more fun. And it's not aimed necessarily at music lovers, but it, I think uh, they're targeting more like the demographic of gamers. And gamers are used to kind of sitting at home, interacting with people on the Internet. And now they'll be able to go into these virtual spaces with their friends and acquaintances and, and their, their, you know, their fellow weirdos. I, I consider myself a weirdo. I'm a gamer, too. And, and go in there and go into these environments and have a fun time with you know, people across time zones. This is interesting because it used to be that a music scene could not emerge until there was a critical mass at one specific geographical point. Now that geographical point is no longer necessary because this happens online, and that's so cool about SoundCloud culture, and that's why I hope SoundCloud somehow pulls through. SoundCloud, or that platform, became the place where Producers from around the world found scenes, found people that make similar music to them, and uh, they started kind of articulating their genre and, and figuring out what it is. And then these people started going on Turntable FM or other platforms like Plug.DJ and having like online listening parties, promoting them with like Facebook events. And I think that's going to move into VR, and and then it's going to be a lot more fun because you can do all kinds of stuff, like you can you know you can be painting in the air around you and. Uh, it can just be way more interactive and way more fun. It's not going to replace anything, I think. It's not going to replace going out to a party. It's not going to replace going to a band. But, you know, maybe it will replace watching TV because I think uh, um, if you're playing a video game, you're not watch- really watching TV. I think there, there's, a, there's a thing. And I think the startup was really interesting and they just got Dave Haynes on board, who was an early employee of SoundCloud doing like business development. He's also one of the founders of Music Hack Day, which is this repeating Hack Day, which emerged uh, at that time, a hackathon, which was moving around the world, uh, still still exists, but at a lower frequency, where all these music companies with APIs that developers could access would come together. Developers from around the world would come together and they'd hack something together in 24 hours, like some some idea or some prototype of a product. And uh, yeah, those were a lot of fun and saw, saw a lot of interesting kind of ideas and innovations. So I'm, I'm really happy to see Dave joining this company recently. Well, we've talked for quite a while here, and you've shared a lot of really great thoughts. Any last words as we wrap up our conversation? Video, and especially short-form video, is really, really important. And I think people underestimate the importance of it. I think Instagram stories are absolutely the place to focus on, to get familiar with. At this point in time, so August 2017, people looking in the future, listening in the future, They can laugh at me if I was completely wrong. But I think this is really important. (laughs) I think it's changing music. I think like playlists, 
playlist created like the playlist edit, which is like an extreme version of the radio edit, where like the vocals are moved all the way to the beginning of the track, so that as soon as the track starts, people hear the vocals and people are less likely to skip because they'll recognize it or they'll, they'll like it. Skips are really bad in playlists because they get you like demoted or removed from the playlist because a skip is indicative of like a negative reaction. Basically, people don't care about this track; they don't want to listen to it. So this is changing the way people make music, and I think apps like Musically, but also Instagram Stories and things like that, they're also going to change uh, music as a format. And I think it's really important to be on top of the newest trends in media and how people express themselves, how people connect. And I think short-form video like Snapchat and like Instagram Stories, that's like the, the most important thing to, to get familiar with at this point, I think. How do you follow that other than just consuming an awful lot of Instagram stories? Are there ways to be immersed in it on a not following every influencer known to me? I mean, how, do, how do you figure out how to engage in that space? I don't like following influencers so much. I like to just follow my friends. And okay, yeah, if you don't have friends in the age demographic that really uses this, it's going to be a bit hard. So then you're, then you're going to probably follow influencers to, to get familiar. The important thing is to create. I remember when I first started using Facebook, which was like 2007, I was posting really random, embarrassing things on there, like looking back embarrassing, because you didn't feel it was going to last forever. And it was really open and free, and you just kind of posted ideas. You said, anyone want to go for a drink tonight? And you posted it on Facebook. And now you cannot be sure if anyone's actually going to see it before before you want to go out. <laughs> and Instagram stories, since they're like just uh, falling off every 24 hours, you can do that in there and people just throw really random stuff in there because it's going to expire anyway and feels really free as a medium, similar to uh, how, how much people were just posting random stuff on Facebook uh, years ago. I think the, the type of random stuff has changed, but people are a lot less personal than they used to be. And on Instagram stories, they are personal and people love that. Like people love when other people are personal. The, the chairman of Netflix, somebody asked him once, do you see in the data what type of stories people like? And he said, like, we don't really see any clear patterns except people like, or I think he said, like, humans like stories about other humans. And I think I think that's that's the, the element there. I think you just have to play around with it uh, and have fun and, and be a little bit personal, maybe show your day. That's why it's called stories. Yeah, and, and create and see how others create and, and get ideas from that. Excellent. So you are sharing your ideas in many places and spaces. If our listeners would like to find you out in the digital world, where would you like to send them? I think Twitter is where I'm most active, which would be Basgras, so B-A-S-G-R-A-S. And then I run a newsletter called Music Tech Future. And to find that, the easiest is to go to musicxtechxfuture.com. Yeah, and that's it, basically. Excellent, because you are, you are fascinating to follow, so I encourage our listeners to please follow Boss because he's got amazing things that he has his hands in and can show you through his creation how you can be enjoying what's happening in the creation in all these spaces. Thank you very much for joining us, and thank you for staying up so late in Berlin to talk with me at a decent hour here in Los Angeles. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this podcast. Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.edu. 
Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in innovating music. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Merrimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.